Uh, we're going to continue our study. we got a few more weeks in 2 Timothy, and then I'm really excited after that study is completed that I'm going to take a pause in this study, and we're going to, uh, the teens and the adults are going to study together uh, a series of messages called The War of Words, and uh, it's a 13-week study on how we use our words, our tongue. It's a powerful study, and uh, some of us are going to be teaching the teens, some of us are going to be teaching the adults. What am I doing? Oh, 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 everybody's looking at me funny, yeah. Sorry, and thank you. Aaron, Aaron's class, you guys can be dismissed. I'm sorry about that. Uh, I was just going to punish you all, make you all stay in here tonight. I forgot, about, I forgot about that. If you're with Aaron, you guys can head down the hallway there. Um, and so uh, we're going to be starting that study. It's going to be, a, it is a tremendous Bible study, and I'm looking forward to that uh, before, and that'll start right in the first week of January. Um, also want to say, I got some teen parents here, and there's some... Uh, of our teenagers here, uh, there's one event that I want to mention to you as fast as I can. We do have a parent meeting on Sunday, this coming Sunday after church, very briefly for parents and teenagers. And the main objectives that I want to share with you, the two big events for the year 2022. And the first one is really coming on as fast. We're going to be doing a winter retreat. It's going to be at Universal Studios down in um, Universal in Orlando. Uh, it's going to be an awesome, it's a Christian uh, music festival called Rock the Universe of all things. But uh, it's going to be an awesome time to go hear some great music. We're going to be able to uh, study God's word together uh, as a group and then also be involved in Universal Studios. And I've already put that up as an event on, on a planning center. And so you can do a deposit of $50. The whole trip, three nights lodging and Universal tickets for two nights is only $200. It's really, really uh, a tremendous price for our teenagers to go. And uh, if you want to help a teenager go, you can let me know. But this is an active thing. We've already got the rooms reserved um, by faith, believing that you're all going to come. So, uh, and it's going to be a great time where we launch the new year in the youth ministry, okay? All right, well, let's read 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse number 1. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, Boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, Loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. But you... Have carefully followed my faith, my, do my doctrine, my manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived, but... You must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, 
And that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Amen. This is God's word. I want to speak to you tonight on the subject, God always has an answer. God always has an answer. You ever met somebody like that? Blake said to me the other day, he, uh, I can't remember what he asked me. This is my four-year-old. He said, Dad, he asked the question, and then as soon as I gave him the answer, he reached over and hugged one of my legs and said, Dad, you always have the answer. Now, that's... Absolutely not true. It's like the time that Adriana and I were driving to school when she was about four, maybe five, out in California. We were driving uh, out to school, and the, the school that I was teaching at and the school she went to faced east from our house, and my windows were all fogged up, and of course, I didn't start my truck in time uh, to get out, and I had all the fog going on, the frost on the window, and my, uh, I turned around and drove the car east. Of course, the sun was beaming right in our face through the frost. And uh, I, I had to stop the car, <clears throat> stop the car, and got out. I pulled out, my, pulled out my wallet, got a credit card out, started scraping, you know, enough just to kind of stick my eyeball up in the window, just enough to see it. And while I was scraping the window, and, and uh, right before I did that, she said, Dad, are you going to move the sun? Of course, I can't move the sun, but... You know, in her mind at that time, she thought I could. Here's the thing. I will not always be able to do everything that my children want me or need me to do. I won't always have the answer for every question they ask. In fact, I won't always have the answer for every question you ask. Sometimes you look at problems and you look at society and you look at uh, paradoxes and you think to yourself, there's just not a good answer. I want you to know that whatever you and I are facing, and we are facing a lot, that God always has an answer. In fact, 2 Timothy chapter 3, I debated about breaking this up into two messages, and then the more I studied it, the more I thought to myself, this really all goes together. And in the first, the first uh, you know, seven or eight verses, you see there's an age of apostasy. And then in the last part, beginning at verse number 10, you see an answer for the ages. And so God tells us in chapter number 3 and verse number 1 that in the last days, perilous times will come. You must emphatically, Paul says, but this know that in last days, perilous times will come. In the very last part of the very last days, in the very end of the age, hurtful, harmful, dangerous, unpredictable, uncontrollable, high-risk periods will come. And this is what I think is most interesting about this particular passage. It's talking about the church. This passage is not talking about the way I think that life in the world is going to be outside of the church. I think that Christ is talking about a time that will be at the end of his church age in which there will be a great apostasy within the church. That within the church itself, within people who profess to be saved, there will be a a high, dangerous, Spirit in the church. Vance Havner said that our day is a day of anarchy in the world and apostasy in the church and apathy in the lives of individual believers. 
Uh, the, the word translated last days here is a word that is in Greek, eschatos. Any of you Bible students would know that eschatology is the study of last things or what's going to happen at the end of the age. Things like the rapture of the church, things like the tribulation period, things like the uh, second coming, the millennial reign, the uh, judgment seat of Christ. What, all, those, all those events that we think about happening in the last days. And Paul tells us here that during the last days, which are the days of the church, at the very end of those last days, there are going to be some really difficult times within the church. This is what's going to happen. And I got to tell you, when you read through this and you start looking at the church at large, I'm not picking on our church individually or our individuals in our church as individuals necessarily, but you need to understand that as a whole, and definitely uh, in, in every local church at least somewhat represented, there are going to be troublesome days. And the people who are within those congregations who profess to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, they will be a part of the troubling times that come upon churches. And I know that I've experienced that myself. Here Paul's going to give us a description for troubling days. Uh, this will be particularly difficult. Why will these days be so difficult? Think about this. When you read through this list of, of uh, describing what the church is going to be like, what is it that's going to bring so much trouble upon the church? Answer, people. When he says perilous times will come, now he's going to start listing the way that people are. There will be no trouble in your life like people trouble. One thing that you can, care, that you can count on in life is that people will have misplaced affections, people will produce damaged relationships, and all of those things are spoken of in this text. Let me, let me just break it down for you for a few minutes. There are two different ways that people create trouble in the house of God or in their family or in their personal lives. First of all, it's through misplaced affections. When you read through this vast list, I counted them out. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. There's 17 character qualities and these nine verses. In fact, it's less than that. It's more like six verses. There are 17 qualities of people, and they can all be broken up into two categories, two very, very dangerous categories. The first one is misplaced affections. Did you notice how many times the word lovers was used in this text? He talks about lovers of self. He talks about lovers of money. He talks about um, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. You put those four things together, and you're talking about somebody whose affections are in the wrong thing. In fact, the only thing in this verse that people should be loving is the one thing in the verse that they don't love. You do realize that loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is the first and greatest commandment. Folks, listen, to love anything or anyone more than you love God is the greatest sin in all the Bible. Because the greatest commandment in the Bible is to love God with everything that you have. And here... We see that these misplaced affections come in three forms. They're, first of all, lovers of themselves. They have a great affection for themselves. I cannot think of anything that is more anti-Christian in all of the universe than somebody loving themselves more than they love God. Philippians chapter 2 says, if, the, uh, if any of you be in Christ, if anyone has experienced bowels and mercies, let this mind be in you. Let not every man uh, Seek not every man his, his own ways. But let every man look also on the things of others. 
You've no doubt heard this. Real joy in life comes from Jesus first, others second, you last. J-O-Y. And one of the fastest ways to get yourself mixed up, tripped up, and not experiencing what Christ would have you to experience in your life is to reverse that. Love you more important than anything. And love others maybe more important than God. You've got it all backwards. The Christian experience is an experience of selflessness. The most fundamental thing that you and I share when we share likeness to Jesus Christ is the selflessness that Jesus had. Could there be anything that better describes what Jesus did for you and me? Think about what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. It says, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be made rich. You realize that it was all about you with Christ, all of it. Everything he did, the blood that he shed, the cross that he died upon, the tomb that was empty. He loved you. And sad to say, in return, all he wants is for us to love him. And yet we find that many people love themselves. Secondly, he talks about a love of money, an obsession of, with money. Uh, I would say a great affection for money. And, and i, I got to tell you, I have seen on more than one occasion that the love of money has become the primary thing that gets between somebody and God. And it could come in all kinds of little creeping forms in your life. It can come through not giving because I love my money for myself more than that. It could come through taking a job or a career solely based on money rather than the effect that it might have on your family, on your time, on your ability to be committed to a local church. There's a lot of ways this can creep up. It can creep up, frankly, by just uh, using all of my resources predominantly for me and the advancement of what I want rather than the advancement of the cause of Christ and the kingdom of God. There are a lot of people that are lovers of money. I'll never forget preaching uh, in Burbank, California one time, and, and, and I, this, this is just like the coolest church ever. I mean, you're talking about people. There, there was, a, there was a, a guy in the church that had just gotten saved uh, right out of Hollywood, and he, he was literally just just got saved out of a homosexual lifestyle. And, and it had not all rubbed off yet, okay? And, man, this guy, he, he, I mean, he dressed the part. He talked the part. His name was Marius. I'll never forget him. Uh, in fact, when I flew in to L.A. to preach, Marius was there to pick me up. And he picked me up in a convertible uh, Mercedes-Benz, a, a white one with white leather seats. It was unbelievable. And, uh, and he, he picked me up. He had, he had, a, he had like a, uh, uh, I don't even know what you call it, like a, some kind of scarf like the girls wear tied around his neck. And, and he was really, he was extremely feminine, okay? He just was. And, and he, he, I got done preaching the first, the, the first Sunday, and I'll never forget this. He came marching down the aisle, and he walked right up to me, and he just said, delicious, delicious, delicious. He was talking about, he was talking about my sermon, thankfully, Okay. He was a great guy. There was another girl. There was another girl who just got saved that church, and she literally, she literally came out of the Playboy Mansion. We became friends with them. These were, these were people that got saved. It was an unbelievable thing. That girl, the girl that got saved out of the Playboy Mansion, she came to church every single time the doors were open. One day, I, I remember she walked up to me. I don't even remember what I was preaching on. She, she walked up to me in tears. She is literally sobbing got done preaching, she's sobbing, she walks up to me and she hands me a check and like sticks it in my pocket. And I'm like, I don't understand. She said, God, this was a Sunday night, a revival meeting. 
She said, God just absolutely has been working on me. She said, I literally, after church this morning, I had been eyeballing this handbag online. She said, as soon as church was over, I drove all the way across the city, and that's no small task in Los Angeles. I drove all the way across the city and spent X amount of hundreds of dollars on a handbag. And tonight I just realized how materialistic I am. And she said, I just said to God during the sermon tonight that if I was going to give that much money for a handbag, I was going to turn around and give the same amount of money to the Lord's work. And that would be you. And I said, oh, well, thank you. Thank you for that, right? And I was shocked. At the amount of money, and again, I'm not here to talk about you should only spend this much on this and this on this, but she was starting to learn something, wasn't she? She was starting to learn something about it really isn't all about that, especially when I can do stuff like that, but I have no time and no resources for God and for his work. That's a really good lesson to learn. People are lovers of money. And then then there's this whole series of words that talk about how people can become arrogant. They're so in love with themselves that they cannot be in love with Christ. Look at these words here. There's boastful, full of big words, again, about themselves. Okay, for those of you that love Frozen, now i got to tell you, I've seen Frozen one million times this year because it's in my van. If somebody wants to buy me some new Disney DVDs, you just go right ahead, okay? Because the only, I, I have heard Frozen, I'm not kidding, about a hundred times since August. And I've almost got the whole thing memorized, okay? And, and the guy I'm thinking of here, the boastful guy here, is the guy that comes to Coronation Day, and he's the, he's the king of Weaselton, that guy right there, and, and he's talking about how he can dance. And you remember this scene from, this is all I can think of. I mean, I'm losing my mind, people. All I can think about is Frozen and the king of Weaselton and, and his hair flopping and being a prancing peacock or whatever he's talking about. That's what this guy is. Full of big words. Hey, listen. There's a lot of things that you can praise. There's a lot of things you can talk up. There's a lot of things that you can make big. Just make sure it's not you. Arrogance, feelings. Where does boastfulness come from? It comes from arrogance. Feelings of unwarranted self-importance. How would somebody ever be boastful unless, first of all, they actually felt that way about themselves? Folks, listen, I don't know about you, but when I look at me, My opinion of myself does not get greater and greater and better and better. It, in fact, gets worse and worse and worse and worse, especially as I compare it to the Lord Jesus Christ. He talks about blasphemers naturally. And that that word is an interesting word. It means to hurl accusations, revile other people, insult, slander, and abuse people. This is what people do that are proud. Proud people hurt people. Proud people insult people. Proud people revile and slander other people. Why? Because they think they're better than everybody else. He talks about headstrong here in the text. Doing reckless things with no consideration for the fallout that comes upon them or others. He talks about being conceited or puffed up without self-control. Literally, without the strength to resist the solicitations of your passions. I'm just talking about a guy whose affections are in the wrong place. And not only does he talk about your your affections being misplaced, now he's going to talk about what damage is done to relationships when your affections are in the wrong place. I spent 30 minutes of my day today talking to a young lady, trying my best, by the grace of God, to pray and talk her out of an abortion. All tied to a loser who's willing to sleep with her, but as soon as she gets pregnant, he wants her to terminate the baby. That is the definition of what this text is talking about. 
And he says here, when you're selfish, when you're self-centered, when you're self-absorbed, it's going to hurt the relationship. I mean, look, look, sorry, and kids, listen up here. Look at the first one here. All right, look in the middle of verse number two. Disobedient to parents. Folks, it's still in the Bible. It's plastered all over the Bible. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Every young person listen to me very carefully. I might be old school. I might have gray hair, but listen to me very carefully. It is impossible for you to be wrong with your parents and right with God. It's not possible. Because if there's something wrong there, that means there's something wrong between you and God. Because they are his representatives on this earth. You say, well, my parents aren't perfect. Well, hello, join the club. I'm glad you figured out yet. That means you're at least older than three if you know that your parents aren't perfect, okay? Now, Blake's still not sure about that, but you should be sure about that by now. I know they're not perfect. You're not asked to obey somebody because they're perfect. You're asked to obey somebody because you love God. So disobedient to parents. He goes on. He talks about ungrateful, destitute of gratitude toward God and toward others. And then there's this string of words that, that, that are the absence of, like unholy. That's the absence of holiness. Unloving, that's the absence of love. Unforgiving, that means the absence of a truce. You're not willing to reconcile. You're not willing to come together agreeably. Slanderers, he talks about malicious gossips. By the way, the word slanderer here, guess what the Greek word is? I, this is you talk about just piercing, folks. The word slander in Greek, get it, diabolos. Nothing is more like the devil than people who talk about other people. Diabolos, the evil one, the slanderer, the devil, the old devil himself. Listen, that's not my company. That's not what I want to be around. Somebody help me up here. That's not where I want to be in my life. Anybody that's like that is going to bring damage and destruction to those around them. But you know, look, I could talk about this all night. Brutal. Savage, fierce, untamed, cruel, haters of good. They're without good. Traitors, people that betrayed their friends. And But here's the worst part of it all. I could spend all night talking about this, but let me, let me take you to what the worst part of this is. Look at verse number five. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. You want to know what the worst part of this is? They look like they're saved. They come to church. They sing the songs. They act like everything's okay, but they've never experienced the power of the transformation of the Holy Spirit of God. They have never actually experienced the resurrection of Jesus in their life because what the Bible calls your salvation is being made alive in Christ. People that live like that are not alive in Christ. People that live different than that, Christ has made their hearts alive, right? It's sad, friend. It's sad that you could actually have a form, a shape, an appearance of knowing God. And the fact is, you don't. Look, if I was going to go to hell, I'd rather go to hell from a bar stool than a church pew. Because I do believe, and Scripture gives warrant to it, there are degrees of punishment in hell, no question about it. And it is based upon the knowledge and the opportunity that you have. I don't understand it all. I don't understand electricity, but I don't sit in the dark either, amen? I don't know everything. I don't understand everything, but I know this. I know that it's a dangerous and scary place to be sitting in a church pew and never been regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God. I know that much. Sad is a man's plight who wears the name of Christian but has never been quickened by the Holy Spirit of God. Then, then you see in verses 6 and 7 quickly here, you see a subtle attack in troubling days. How does this stuff start to work? Now this, please, 
Please, ladies, don't get upset. This is not talking about ladies in general. This is a specific kind of ladies. So please don't hate me. I didn't write it. I'm just a paper boy, okay? Look at what it says here. Verse 6, for of this sort are those who creep into households. Notice this. Notice the subtle nature of their attack. Watch it. Notice where they attack, the home. And notice who they attack in the home. Watch this. Gullible women loaded down with sins, led, by, led away by various lusts. Let me just stop there and let me make a comment on this because please don't ever think, ladies, that Christianity is, is, is a kind of faith that makes women second-class citizens. That is absolutely false. If you want that, then go be a Muslim because you'll be second-class there. But Christianity, actually, if you study the Bible you will find, and history, you will find that Christianity liberated women for the first time and elevated them to a status of equality. Do you want to know real equality of the sexes? You'll find it in the Bible. You'll find that each person, male and female, equally was created in the eyes of God. They're both image bearers, so they're both precious in the eyes of God. The only thing that some people have a hard time swallowing is that God gave different roles to men as he did women. It's not that hard to figure out. This is not rocket science, people. It shouldn't be that difficult. It doesn't mean that men are more inferior to women. My wife is way, way superior to me in at least a thousand ways, okay? I'm not even sure if I've got one on her, okay? Maybe preaching, maybe, but you've not heard her at home preach, okay? I'm just here to tell you, there's like, there are at least a thousand ways my wife is more proficient, superior, and she's, she's definitely, she's a better organizer, she's more intelligent than I am, she's better with money than I am, she's better with her hands than I am. Don't say anything, Wade. She's better with the kids than I am. I could go on and on and on. And you know what the Bible does with women? It lifts their role up. It lifts who they are up and exalts them in their place. So please, this is not talking about some slam on women, like making fun of women because they're so gullible. That's not what this is talking about at all. It's talking about a specific kind of woman who in her new liberation in her ability to be somebody she's never been before, starts taking liberties. And I think this text is even talking about sexual liberties, um, her, her letting her lust take control of her. It talks about that. A woman who's open to relationships and influences, particularly by men outside of her husband and her church and her home now, who, who, have, who have found their passions overtaking them, are more gullible to smooth-talking false teachers. That's what it's talking about. So the point is, Satan will attack its most vulnerable. Think about it. Think about uh, the, the picture, Satan is a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour, right? Have you ever seen a documentary of, of lions attacking a pack of wildebeest? They don't ever go for the strongest and the fastest. They go for the weakest and the ones on the fringe and the ones that are injured. By the way, I've seen the video, you may have seen it too, of the, the couple of uh, 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 deer that are locked up and they're fighting and they're they're. they're tearing each other apart and you see off in the distance this lion running in from off in the distance hey go ahead and fight your brother and sister go ahead and fight another church member go ahead and stay in an argument with your wife and your kids all the time and while you're locking horns with everybody around you the old devil's coming in getting those people that are most susceptible because they're not where God wants them to be and then he's going to provide an illustration of troubling days look at verse 8 
Now, as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, somebody tell me, where do you find Janus and Jambres in the Bible? Nowhere. <laughs> they're not there. It's just uh, two people that are named in the New Testament, but they're not named in the Old Testament. Most Bible scholars believe this is probably a magician, a set of magicians in Pharaoh's court. I don't know who it is, but definitely what they were is they were people who probably came out, Exodus chapter 7, verse 11, 22, 7, uh, 8, 8, 7, and 8, 18, uh, talk about they probably attacked, counterfeited, tried to work against Moses specifically in this area. The point is this. That when God is doing a work in and through your life, your home, and your church, Satan is absolutely going to see to it that somebody tries to subvert it and stop it. You know what? I've just decided this is just part of life. And, and, and if you guys are following along this Genesis study we've been doing on Sunday morning, if you follow along with what we talked about this morning in Genesis chapter 41, the Bible, the Bible talks about Joseph, Joseph's years like, just like it's just that easy. Now after two years. Two years? Are you kidding me? In fact, do you know between Genesis chapter 37 and Genesis 41, there's 13 years? Because Genesis chapter 37 says Joseph was 17, and Genesis chapter 41 says Joseph was 30. That means between the promise, the dreams, and the fulfillment of the dreams was 13 years. And I was thinking about this all day long. I was thinking, my daughter is 14 years old, basically her entire life. And you want to know what his life was filled with? Pain struggle, opposition, and, and I just thought to myself, and then, and then he has those kids, right? Ephraim and Manasseh. Manasseh means the Lord has made me forget the trouble of my homeland, and Ephraim means the Lord has made me fruitful. Watch this, in the land of my affliction. And I thought, man, that's it right there. That is it right there. It's not in the land after my affliction. No, no, no. God has found a way to make me fruitful in my affliction. And that's what you have to grab onto, church. I think I've said it at least 100 times while we've been going through 2 Timothy that we should not be looking for easy street. We shouldn't be looking for a comfortable avenue. What we should be realizing is that this is just a struggle. There will always be people that stand against the work of God. There will always be issues in a church. There will always be problems wherever you are. So quit trying to look for something comfortable and let God bless you with fruit in the land of your affliction. Hey, listen. There is a homeland where our dreams do come true. But it's not here. You know, the, the, the guy wrote the book, Your Best Life Now. I'm telling you what, friend, if you, the only way that you can have your best life now is if you're on your way to hell. There is no way you can experience your best life here. Your best life's on the other side. Hey, we're almost home. We're almost there. It's coming. Just wait. Just hang on and stay faithful. That's what he's talking about here. So in the middle of this, what are we supposed to do with all this apostasy collapsing on around us? Verses 10 through 17 give us the answer for the ages. What is God's answer? What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to do three things in this text. Number one, we're supposed to follow godly examples. Verse number 10, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, and afflictions, which happened to me at Iconium, Lystra, and Antioch. Notice this. Hey, listen, if I was going to have a list of things define my life, I want it to be from verse number 10 and 11, not from verses 1 through 4. 
Here's what I like. Here's what Paul says. Timothy, you want to know how you're going to make it? You've watched me. And I want to give two challenges here. I want to give a challenge to those who should understand that you are being watched. Notice this. Fully known. You have fully known me. So many people say they want ministry. They want community. They want to make a difference in people's lives. The problem is you're not willing to get close enough to somebody who can fully know who you are. You don't, look, friend, you, you, don't, you don't influence people predominantly behind a platform or behind a computer screen or on social media or in a classroom or wherever I've done all these. No, no, no you want to influence people. Get close enough to somebody. Get, get as, the, as they say, if you want to you make a difference in the church, smell like sheep. Get around some sheep. Get around some people. Get around somebody that you can be close enough to that, that they'll hear you talk. They'll watch your life. They'll, 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 they'll have meals with you. They'll go on trips with you. They'll, they'll run errands with you. They'll sit down and coffee with you. And right now, I'm, I'm burdened about this in, the, in my church. I'm burdened about it for me. And I'm being as intentional as I've ever been in my life right now to get down in the trenches where the sheep are day in and day out. I'm not just going to try to make a difference publicly. The only way that I know how to get people to follow Jesus is to let what's happening in my life rub off on them a little bit. And you can't do that from a distance. It's not going to happen. So quit looking for influence. Start influencing. And then, and then there's... Young people, obviously, you should be careful who you're looking to. Now, Timothy, look, Timothy, this is the amazing thing. Paul mentions here specifically persecutions and afflictions. And then, of course, in verse 12, he's going to say, hey, all that live godly are going to, all are going to suffer persecution. So he says, follow examples, but then expect persecution and hostility. You need to expect this. And then he, but before he said that, he gives the example. He mentions the place Iconium and Lystra. Go back in your Bible, look at Acts 13 and 14. Go back to what he's talking about there. He's talking about his first missionary journey. Do you know what happened to Paul at the end of his first missionary journey? He was drug outside of the city. He was stoned. They, they stoned him. They thought he was dead. And the Bible says the next day, the disciples carried him back in the city. And guess what he did? He preached again. He's crazy. He's a Jesus freak. He's a psycho. I love it. And guess who was more than likely standing around watching all this happen. Yeah, that's why he says, you know. You know. You know good and well what I went through. And verse 12, you better expect this going to happen to you too. So we are naive. By the way, and, and I know I say this a lot, but I'll just keep saying it because it's worth saying. Whatever you do, church, I'm for you getting teaching and instruction anywhere that the Bible's being preached, that's awesome. I listen to podcasts and teaching and audio books, and I go, if I can, to other you know, churches and hear the word if I, at other times when, it's, when, the, when the, typically I'm preaching, I understand that. But I mean, if, if I ever get a chance, okay, I love to hear from other people. But let me tell you, let me tell you the danger that you have to watch out for in this world of many teachers. A prevalent gospel message in the many teachers that we see around here is a message of prosperity, of health and wealth and comfort that comes from some of the most powerful voices in Christianity. Let me tell you something. If you're hearing a teacher 
tell you something other than this is not going to be an easy road. You're going to have to stand tall for Jesus. You're going to have to count the cost. If you're, if you're listening to anybody who's trying to get you to shortcut that as if there was another way, as if there was an easy road, as if it was all about leather seats in your car and thick bank accounts and, 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 and nice watches and, and stuff like that, you're listening to the wrong person. The right person will just tell you, look, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news. This is just going to be tough. But Christ endured it, and we can too. And then, of course, in verses 13 through 17, he tells us that the real answer is when we cling to the word of God. Guys, listen, I've been thinking a lot about this. I'm not changing anything here, but i got to tell you, something bothers me. Well, I, I, get, I get more bothered about it about every time I think about it. And it is the condition of the 21st century ch- church. Our love for frills and frivolities and things that just don't matter. You want to know what the bottom line is? Church should be about the word of God. That's what church is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about a faithful preacher that loves the Bible and feeds the sheep every time they're together. And if I'm here for anything other than sheep feed, I'm here for the wrong thing. And he says, you know this, Timothy, from a a kid, you knew the Bible. Thank God for the influence that 2 Timothy 1 talks about of his mom and his grandma teaching him the Bible from the time he was a kid. Don't ever underestimate that. I know there may be some grandparents in the room, and you may have some opportunity to, to minister to your grandkids, maybe even really young grandkids. Bring them to church. Put them in the class. Let them hear the word of God. They might be two. They might be three. It doesn't matter. Bring them up on the knee with the word of God. Because that's going to make a difference in their lives. He says, you've, you've known this from a kid. And, and, and those scriptures that you learned when you were a kid are able to make you wise unto salvation. And then he's going to give us one of the greatest statements in all the Bible about itself. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It means the book is from God. It's God-breathed. Theopneustos. It is the word came from God into the mind of the human author who recorded down the words that God said. Those words give us the ability. They're inspired. All scripture is inspired by God and therefore it is profitable. Never forget this. That book in your lap is the most profitable uh, investment you will ever own. It will bear out fruit. It will bear out return in your life more than anything you will ever invest your life in what does what does Isaiah say my word will come forth as rain and it will bear fruit it will not return void people ask me all the time how long does it take you to 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 to, uh, prepare a sermon a lifetime you said does every sermon take you seven hours no does every sermon take you ten hours no some sermons take one some sermons take two because it's not about what happened in a week. It's about the, it's a, come on, it's about the compound interest of knowing the Bible, of learning the Bible, of teaching the Bible over the years. You might be new. This might be new to you. Don't get weary. Don't give in. You read the Bible consistently. You listen to preaching consistency. You come to Bible studies like this consistency, and guess what's going to happen? You're going to know the word, and it's going to bear compound interest on you. Then when you get older, and you've been doing this for 20 years, and you've been doing this for 30 years, you'll be pouring out fruit on your kids and your grandkids and your church and the kids in your church. Why? Because you've lived in the word of God and it's been profitable for you. Never, ever, ever spend days or weeks without the word of God in your life. It is profitable for you. Watch this, verse 17. That the man of God 
may be mature. I love this. Thoroughly furnished. In other words, God in his word has everything you need. I bought a house, <clears throat> our house was bought a few years ago, Lennar Homes, okay? And they had this slogan, everything's included, and I want to say, no, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. That's a lie. It's not. You taught me, you walk me through this like model house, and like everywhere you look and everywhere you turn, it says, you know, this is an upgrade. This is an upgrade. No, no, we, I want to talk about the everything's included thing. Here's what God's saying. My word is everything's included. It actually has everything that you need to deal with the age of apostasy that unfortunately all of us have to live in. So let's pray and ask God to help us with this. Lord.